On July 18, 1984, one evil man would change the lives of everyone in San Cedro, California. This episode is dark, emotional, and brought me to tears numerous times during my research. It's about the fifth worst mass shooting in American history. It is definitely not for children or the faint of heart. Hi, true crime fans. You're tuning into Coffee, Murder, and Mystery, a true crime podcast where we discuss murder, mystery, and the supernatural. I'm your host, Melissa Lancaster. And when I came across this story, I really struggled with would I tell it or should I not tell it? You know, there's a big stigma with mass shootings and not glorifying them. And my intent would never be to glorify anything that resulted in the death or injury of anyone. But I had never heard this story. I was only three when this happened, and I had no idea about this mass shooting. And as every crime of this nature, this is really sad. There's so much mental illness involved, and of course, a lifetime of trauma for the victims and their families. I decided that I feel what led up to these incidents shouldn't be ignored. Our mental health system really needs change. I wish that I could be the one to make that change. Like so many other people, I would have no idea how to do that or where to start. What do you do when you see that someone is mentally ill? You think that they could be a threat to yourself or others. You can call the police, but if they haven't actually committed a crime, or maybe they have committed small crimes, there's not a lot that can be done. And I personally think that that is something that needs to change. You can put somebody on a 72-hour psychiatric hold. This might be different from state to state, but that's how it is in our area. And after they get prescribed some medication, they're free to go on their way. And they don't have to continue to take that medication unless they're court-ordered, which I think is probably a really, really hard thing to do. As Americans, we want to maintain our freedom. That's what our country was founded on. But but in not taking away the rights of people who are showing severe mental illness, we could be putting massive amounts of people in danger. And it's just such a line that no one knows how to cross and no one knows how to do anything about. And if we could just figure out a way to maintain everyone's freedom, yet fix that system, the United States of America would be a better place, a safer place. If you work in the mental health community and you have ideas for change, please try. What's the worst that could happen? That you fail and you move on and try to implement something else. We need mental health change and reform. And now that I've paused this recording just for a second to grab my cup of coffee, I don't know if you guys could hear it brewing or not. It was kind of loud in the background. I'm ready to tell you all about James Huberty. James Huberty was born into a religious home. 
which seems to really be a theme with people who do horrific things. And maybe that's just like the struggle with good against evil, or maybe there's just something a little bit abusive in that or a little bit traumatic in that. And we are not knocking people who live in religious homes. My whole family is religious. I am religious. But it seems to be when it's at like a religious fanatic level that it really seems to cause an issue. And I think a lot of us realize that although there's so many good people in church, it also seems to be a place for evil people to hide. They hide behind the goodness of church to pretend that they aren't really evil deep down inside. The family regularly attended church services at the United Methodist Church. And James contracted polio when he was only three years old, but he was able to recover. He wore braces on both legs as a child and did have a limp that would last throughout his life. James' father purchased rural property for the family to live on. It was in Pennsylvania. Clearly, he did this without his wife's consent because she refused to live on the property. She didn't want to live in a rural area. So what would you do if your husband purchased property that you didn't want to live on? Maybe you would demand they sell it or really put your foot down and take your children and leave and say, you know, we have to go live somewhere else. Life is a compromise, right? But not James's mother. She didn't do any of those things. She actually just abandoned her family to become a sidewalk preacher in Arizona. To me, this indicates mental illness in the family. To just get up and leave your children whom you should have already bonded with. James's father said that he took his mother's abandonment really hard and he would find him like crouched down and crying behind the chicken coop. What child wouldn't take that hard? Must be horrific to be abandoned by your mother. And now these children haven't just inherited mental illness. I mean, possibly they have trauma. We spoke about some implications of absent parents in our last Patreon episode about twins who killed, and it's definitely hard on children. It is definitely traumatic, but there's a lot of mental illness in the world and people function with it every day. Although we have come a long way in that area since then. Children are abandoned by their parents all the time and they live perfectly normal lives. Those two things alone can't explain the horrors this man would unleash upon the world. There is no excuse for these actions. It seems James sunk his grief into target practice. He was described as a queer child with little social activity who incessantly practiced shooting. It said that by the time that he was a teenager, he was basically an amateur gunsmith. With his extremely religious family, difficulty socializing, and of course, that residual limp, he was often the target of bullying. James graduated high school as an average student and started out studying sociology, but he quickly changed his mind and went to college to become a mortician. He graduated and obtained his license, and he even worked at a funeral home for a few years, but his difficulty socializing meant dealing with the public wasn't for him. James changed directions and became a welder. 
James' employers would describe him as reclusive but reliable, and he advanced in his career. By 1975, James was earning between $25,000 and $30,000 a year. Adjusting that for inflation, it's about $121,000 to $145,000 a year today. James had married a woman that he met in college, and they moved into a nice three-story house in Massillon, Ohio. Unfortunately, the home was destroyed in a fire, which seems to be the first in a very long string of bad luck. The couple bought another home on the same street. They kept the land that their home was on before it burnt down and built a small apartment complex in its place. It had six apartments. It seems like the family started out with great goals and, you know, they were making a great living. And the family was even expanding. The couple had two daughters born in 1972 and 1974. But their situation was far from normal. James would frequently slap his daughters. He even sometimes held knives to their throats. His wife, Edna, even made a report once stating that he messed up her jaw. But she would later claim that he only hit her once, which I doubt was true. It's even said that he would take a loaded gun and point it at the girls and his wife threateningly. These angry outbursts were not limited to Etna and the girls. Neighbors reported both Etna and James trying to get their daughters to fight other children during like neighborhood kid disagreements. It seems one of the family's dogs got loose at a point, and it, these dogs would just roam the neighborhood, growling at people, and were just mean dogs. And when the neighbors were upset that the dogs were loose, James walked out with a gun and shot his own dog in the head. What would you do if your husband held a knife to your daughter's throat or threatened you and your daughters with a gun? I hope you would leave. I would be out of there so fast. Half that stuff wouldn't been able to happen. But Atna stayed, and I don't get the impression that she even wanted to leave. She did try at times to convince her husband to get some mental health treatment for his anger. She and the girls felt like they were walking on eggshells to avoid upsetting him. When that didn't work, she eventually convinced her husband that she could read tarot cards, and he believed her. And I mean, maybe she could, but I feel like it was just Etna manipulating her husband. And maybe it was for the better. Maybe she was manipulating him positively. I don't know what she was telling him. But Etna felt like her advice during the tarot card readings calmed and helped her husband. He would do the things that she told him to do. James' co-workers described him as paranoid, ill-tempered, and a conspiracy theorist. I don't think any one of those things makes you terribly mentally ill or terribly threatening to society, but I think when you put them all together you know, with his abusive tendencies, there's really a problem here. James believed the government was conspiring against him, and he would talk about society collapsing through nuclear war. He became a survivalist. 
He was preparing for a crisis and stocked his home with non-perishable food and guns. James had stashed loaded guns around his home, just all over so he could grab one in case he needed one. With the safeties disabled, I don't know about you, but I would be afraid my children would hurt themselves or just so many accidents could happen. But, you know, I'm sane, right? And in 1982, things took a turn for the family. The firm James was working at announced its closure, leaving James unsure how he would provide for his family. It said that he made the comment that if he was left unable to provide for his family, he would shoot himself and take them with him. But Etna stayed with her husband and did nothing about this. Etna claimed that after her husband became unemployed, he began hearing voices. And in 1983, he put a gun up to his temple and she stopped him from killing himself. I can't believe I'm saying this because I feel like I would never condone suicide. It's horrible. Don't do it. It's not worth it. But in this case, if James had killed himself, I mean, I don't know. You'll make your own opinion on that. And you know what they say about hindsight. And things were not going great for the family. James was having trouble finding a job on top of being abusive, obsessing over guns, and hearing voices. They decided to sell the apartment building that they had built on the lot of land their original house had burned down on. They sold it for 115000 James was able to find employment, but after only five weeks, the plant that he was working at shut down, leaving him unemployed again. And a few weeks later, James and one of his daughters were injured in a car accident. Although I don't get the impression it was serious, James did have an increase in neck pain that he had been experiencing since he was a child. I assume from polio, but I'm not sure. And a nerve tremor in his hands and arms developed. And that was probably horrible for him since he was a welder by trade. In 1983, he decided to pick the family up and move them to Mexico. He thought that the 115000 that they had gotten from their apartment building sale would last longer living in Mexico. He was confident this would work and he would say things like, we're going to show them who's boss. They left most of their possessions in storage in Ohio, but James, of course, took his prized possessions, his guns with him. I mean, you can't leave those behind, right? You have to have like all like 50 of them. Edna and the girls were able to embrace their new lives and make friends in Mexico. James did not flourish. He sunk deeper and deeper into depression when he was still unable to find employment. Only three months later, they abandoned this Mexico mission and they relocated the family to San Cedro, California. Their lives sure had changed from James' high-earning Ohio days. The family was now living in a small apartment. But James was able to find employment as a security guard for a large condominium complex in April of 1984. This story definitely makes you wonder more about the background of your security guard. But by July, it was July 10th, he was fired. He was fired for poor work performance and a general physical instability. July 15th was the day that James told Etna 
he thought he had a mental problem. And I do wonder, is this like the first time anybody has said that James has something wrong with him? Did no one else know? Did no one approach Etna and say, listen, your husband, do you think he needs to go to a hospital or something? Etna did seem supportive of him getting mental health treatment, though. And James called a mental health clinic. They told him that they would call him back in a few hours. But when James called the mental health clinic, he was very calm and collected. He just simply asked for mental health assistance. She took his information. Nothing seemed urgent. Nothing seemed dire. James told her he had no prior hospitalizations or mental health history. And instead of them calling him back in a few hours, like they said, his call was actually logged in like a longer non-emergency section. And the callback was scheduled to be completed within 48 hours. Unfortunately, it would be too late. When James didn't receive a return call from that mental health facility, he was angry to say the least. He stood up, walked out of the house, got on his motorcycle, and just left for the hour. But when he came home, he seemed okay. The family ate dinner and even took a family bike ride. James and Etna spent the rest of their evening watching a movie. They woke up on the 18th and took a family trip to the zoo, which seems so sweet and loving and like it should have been a great day. But James made some eerie comments during this trip. He told his wife that he believed his life was effectively over. And he was talking to her about his unreturned call to the mental health facility when he stated, society had its chance. Etna shrugged these comments off because apparently James always made comments like this. So she continued to do nothing. James had received a traffic ticket and went to traffic court after the zoo. He actually succeeded in getting out of his ticket and the judge said later that James seemed calm and respectful and totally normal. The family had lunch at a McDonald's and went home. Etna went to lay down for a bit because, I mean, who's not tired after all that in the morning? I guess James. James isn't tired after all that in the morning because instead, he threw on a maroon shirt and some camo pants, packed a bag full of ammunition and guns, and kissed his wife goodbye. She asked where he was going and he calmly stated that he was going hunting, hunting for humans. And again, Etna did nothing. She went on with her life as if nothing odd was happening or had happened ever. James literally looked at his daughter on his way out the door, who was too young to know the difference or to do anything to stop him. And with a gun over his shoulder, he told her goodbye and that he would not be coming back. Now, they think that James drove around for a few minutes, scoping out a few places just a few minutes from his home one being the post office. But he ultimately decided on a McDonald's that was just maybe like a minute and a half, two minutes from his house. It was positioned slightly up on a hill and really had nothing around it to block anything. He took his backpack and armed with a gun, walked into the McDonald's. 
people initially thought, what the heck, and started to kind of panic. The manager started to walk up to him. But when Jace fired at the first time, his gun didn't go off. It malfunctioned. And he started looking at it. And everyone just kind of looked away as if this was a prank. I mean, who would do something like this? As the manager turned to walk away, James fired again, this time hitting the manager. And all 50 people in this McDonald's realized this situation was very real. James proceeded to shoot at all of the patrons, the windows, anything he could shoot at. But remember, James was not shooting aimlessly. James had practiced shooting his entire life. When he shot the windows, he splintered them. They didn't shatter and fall out. The splintering effect made the visibility inside the restaurant extremely poor. This McDonald's was frequented by parents with children. They had a play place. And as their children were playing in the play place, they scrambled to get them to safety. But there was no safety. There was nowhere for these people to go. Parents shielded their children underneath their tables as James walked around just randomly executing anyone that he could. Police say this is the worst one-day massacre in the history of the U.S. The McDonald's restaurant in San Isidro, a suburb of San Diego, is now a temporary morgue. Coroner's officials are trying to identify the 20 confirmed dead. The gunman has been identified as 41-year-old James Hardy of San Isidro. Because the majority of people that populated this area were Mexican-Americans, people wonder if there was a racial component to this. It's suspected that James may have chose this McDonald's to commit a hate crime. But people that knew James would later come out and say, James hated everyone. His motive for this crime will never be known. Police say his wife was brought to the scene to try to talk him out of the building, but was unsuccessful. So many unfortunate things happened this day. An original 911 call came in. And it was said that a girl had been shot and she was being taken into the post office, which was next door to McDonald's. Police originally went to the wrong McDonald's. And you can see how this could happen. There, there's just so many everywhere. Police went to McDonald's about two miles away from the McDonald's that was under siege. Quickly correcting the mistake, the officer arrived at the correct McDonald's. He quickly realized this situation was not what he thought. It was not a situation of one single girl being shot. This was a situation with at least one gunman. The reason I say at least is because James was armed with a 9mm Uzi, a Winchester pump-action 12-gauge shotgun, and a 9mm Browning HP. Because police heard multiple weapons being fired, They thought there was more than one shooter on scene. They had no visibility inside the restaurant. They didn't know if this could be a hostage situation. And this delayed a lot of action. With the restaurant being on a slight incline and not much around it, it was hard for officers to hide. They couldn't gain access to the restaurant. The gunman wasn't only shooting inside the restaurant. He was also shooting into the parking lot and anywhere he could at any living people that he could find. Three 11-year-old boys were riding their bike to McDonald's to get ice cream. David Flores Delgado 
Omar Alonzo Hernandez, and Joshua Coleman. Someone tried to warn the boys, but it was too late. The gunmen shot from inside the restaurant directly at the 11-year-old boys, hitting all three of them. They all fell to the ground. The gunmen continued to shoot at them. Only Joshua Coleman survived. He survived by playing dead. A mother of two young girls huddled with them under a table. She tried to calm them by telling them the ice machine had exploded and to be quiet. She and her children played dead as James walked up to them and kicked her to see if she was alive. They were lucky, if we want to use that term loosely. She sat and prayed, and her and her children were able to survive the massacre. She was shot along with her four-year-old. They were lucky, if you want to use that term loosely. They were lucky in comparison to Elsa Herlinda Borboa Fierro, 19. She was a McDonald's employee. It was probably her first job. Neva Denise Kane. She was only 22. She was a McDonald's manager. Michelle Deanne Carncross. She was 18. Maria Alina Colmenero Silva. She was only 19. David Flores Delgado. He was only 11. Gloria Lopez Gonzalez. She was 23. Omar Alonzo Hernandez. He was 11. Blythe Regan Herra, 31. She was the mother of Mateo Herrera, who also didn't make it. He was only 11. Paulina Aquino Lopez, 21. She was an employee. Margarita Padilla, 18. She was also a McDonald's employee. Claudia Perez, she was 9. Jose Ruben Lozano Perez, he was 19. Carlos Reyes, he was eight months old. Jackie Lynn Wright Reyes, she was 18, the mother of Carlos Reyes. Victor Maximilian Rivera, 25. Resdelcy Vuevales Vargas, who was 31. Hugo Luis Velasquez, 45. Lawrence Herman, who was known as Gus, he was 62. Ada Velasquez Victoria, 69. Miguel Victoria Loa, 74. And please forgive me for any mispronunciations. I read those victims' names with the utmost respect intended. Paramedics tried to rush to the scene to tend to the injured, but they couldn't because they were stopped by gunfire. It was 4 p.m. when police first received word of this situation. It was 4.05 p.m. when the first description of the suspect was received. By 4.10, a command post was established two blocks from the shooting scene. A SWAT team alert was issued. By 4.18, a pilot and three nurses boarded a life flight helicopter and took off. By 4.19, the restaurant was surrounded by uniformed police officers. By 4.23, a second description of the suspect is broadcast. 
at 428, a third description of the subject is broadcast. Police don't know how many suspects are in the building. They have no visibility, and they're not sure how to handle the situation. It is, at this time, the worst massacre in U.S. history. They have never dealt with something like this before. When they went into work that morning, they could not have imagined they would be dealing with this ever. At 4.35, the first SWAT sniper team arrived, and by 4.45, all the officers that were surrounding the McDonald's were relieved by SWAT team officers. At 4.46, two witnesses escaped through the back door of the restaurant, and they're able to give an accurate description of what is happening inside the restaurant. They tell police he is alone and he is armed with multiple weapons. Police have a more clear picture of what is happening. By 5.02, a second SWAT sniper team was in place on the post office roof. At 5.16, a SWAT officer on ground level at the post office fired two rounds into the McDonald's at the suspect in response to the suspect's gunfire. By this time, James isn't just shooting new people. He's walking around, making sure everyone is dead, and shooting dead bodies, and anyone he suspects could still be alive. And at 5.17 p.m., Charles Foster, a 27-year-old SWAT marksman, fired from atop of a roof. The glass had finally fallen, shattered, from the McDonald's doors, and James had stepped into his view, and he fired killing James with a single shot to the heart. The SWAT sharpshooter then fired a single shot, killing the gunman. Disoriented and confused survivors came out looking for loved ones. Nineteen people were wounded, and instead of seeking medical attention, some of them not even realizing they had been shot, they looked for their loved ones, unsure if they were living or dead. Police entered the restaurant and coaxed other survivors out of closets and hiding places. There were so many people piled into a closet. When police found them, they had to have them put their hands on the person in front of them, turn their heads to the left so they didn't see the carnage as they exited the restaurant. Witnesses say the scene inside the McDonald's was grisly. Two teenagers stayed at their booth, killed as they ate. An elderly woman slumped in her chair, a family strewn on the floor, and still no apparent reason as to why. The incident lasted for 77 minutes. In the time that followed, police were criticized for their lack of action. Victims that were inside wondered why the police weren't rushing in to save them. And understandably, Everyone is looking for a way to direct their anger and their rage about this incident. The man who committed this atrocity is dead. But the fact of the matter is, this was a day without cell phones, and police did take action. They tried to do everything they could to disable this situation. Police today have more training and are better equipped to handle situations such as these. There's a really good documentary on this called 77 Minutes. We watched it on Amazon Prime. I believe it's on IMDb. It really talks about the victims and what they went through that day. There's a lot of survivors that speak, and they actually decided to not say the name of the gunman as to not glorify him in any way. The main focus of 
the documentary is the victims and what people went through. There was one particular survivor that really felt helpless that day and like they wanted to he wanted to do something more to help and he actually grew up and became a member of law enforcement. There was a time when I felt a little bit bad for James' wife Edna, even though she didn't do anything. But then I found that she at one point had been charged with threatening a neighbor with a gun for interfering with her sleep. She also started contacting reporters the day after the shooting, wanting to tell her story. She also attempted to sue McDonald's, saying that additives in the food and metals from his job at a welder caused his mental decline. She lost. Directly after the incident, McDonald's suspended all of their commercials and Burger King followed suit. McDonald's initially planned to reopen the location, but it didn't take much persuading for them to change their minds. They demolished the restaurant with the stipulation that no other restaurant could be built there. They gave the property to the city and a memorial to the victims was erected by San Cedro Southwestern Community College. I hope that all the victims of this massacre rest in peace and that there is a hell and James Oliver Huberty is burning in the deepest, deepest section of it. Tune in next Sunday for a new episode of Coffee, Murder, and Mystery. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. Evil people are everywhere. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to Coffee, Murder, and Mystery. You can find us on the web at www.coffeemurderandmystery.com. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and we also have a YouTube channel. All references for today's podcast are available in our show notes. If you enjoyed our show, please consider giving us an Apple Podcast five-star rating, sharing our show with your friends, and leaving a review. This helps us by allowing more people to find our show. If you would like to support our show with a financial contribution, please consider joining our Patreon. Joining our Patreon at the $5 level will give you a bonus episode on the second week of the month, as well as a second bonus episode on the fourth week of the month. Or go to buymeacoffee.com for a one-time contribution. We appreciate all of our listeners. We wouldn't be able to do this without you. Thank you so much for listening. The information provided in this podcast is solely of our opinion and based upon research that we have conducted via the internet. If you feel that we have represented something inaccurately or unfairly, you can send us an email at coffeemurdermystery at gmail.com. Thanks for your support.